This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience First-hand, the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2. I'm John Norman and on this week's show, joined by one of the best cricket commentators in the business and an integral part of Talk Sports Cricket, Neil Manthorpe. The topic? Well, it's a classic tale of greed, deception, secrecy, threats and political wranglings because this week we are taking you on a journey into the soul of South African cricket. Plenty to discuss over the next hour. I'm pleased to say you're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Well, welcome to the show. Welcome to uh, Neil Manthorpe, who speaks uh, to us from uh, Cape Town, joins us for the next hour or so. Uh, uh, Manners, uh, look, South African cricket has been tying itself up in knots for pretty much as long as I can remember. So why on earth are we dedicating an entire show to this subject this week? It, it must be bad. <laughs> John, it's um, it's actually is in a, in a better place now than, than it has been for for three years, um, perhaps even longer, because finally, 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 the the old board of directors uh, was forced to resign en masse. Uh, they'd been uh, leaving in dribs and drabs, but the hardcore were hanging on, clinging on. I was going to say for dear life, but well, they weren't. They were clinging on to their perks and privileges. Um, but they have now gone. A nine-person interim board has been established by the Minister of Sport, so it constitutes government interference in the running of Cricket South Africa. But um, it's a really, really impressive, largely independent board of nine. Seven of them um, are extremely impressive. It's chaired by a retired um, constitutional court judge in Zak Yakub, and uh, it includes Harun Logat, who was uh, a former ICC chief executive, as you know, um, and was also the uh, Cricket South Africa chief executive until 2017. Um, and there are some some really, really good, in, as I said, independent people. There's a, there's a governance specialist, finance specialists, legal specialists, and Finally, I mean, look, the slate has been wiped clean, but the board didn't resign voluntarily. So in other words, the slate might have been wiped clean, but there's a lot of stains on it, some of which I think will be indelible. But you know what? We dare to hope cautiously of a brighter future. You say that you're cautiously daring to hope of a bright future now, but give us an idea of how bad it got. It's, it's hard to, to say exactly how bad it got because um, an independent forensic audit was commissioned way back in March, um, which is bizarre, really, because the 
um, will gradually unravel how the, the constitution of Cricket South Africa is structured. But it was commissioned by the Members' Council, which is the highest authority in the game in the country. Um, and then when the report was delivered by the forensic auditors, the directors and, and the, the Members' Council, which comprises the 12 provincial presidents, got such a fright that they decided to keep it secret. So they commissioned the report and then didn't like what was in it and made anybody who wanted to read it sign a non-disclosure agreement, which made them financially liable for any litigation that the people t took against Cricket South Africa. So if you signed it and any of the information was leaked, you were liable to, to pay legal costs. I mean, it was... It was extraordinary. So we still don't know what is in that that uh, forensic report. We were given a, a redacted, heavily subbed summary of the findings by Cricket South Africa's lawyers. Um, so they obviously only included the bits that they wanted in it, which um, saw former chief executive Tabang Moreau guilty of a whole slew of um, of offences um, from from potential fraud to poor governance, massive booze bills on his credit card, unauthorized, just just a whole a absolute mess. I mean, he, he it, treated the... Uh, it reminds me of a, a story. I don't know if you remember a few years back, there was this uh, a blog site mysteriously appeared promising to shine the light on the cockroaches in West Indian cricket. And it released like a whole ranch of um, receipts, including, uh, I think there was one, well, not just one, but let's just say Burger King were getting something like uh, £30,000 worth of custom every like uh, few months. And it was a fascinating insight into, you know, essentially um, how money is spent, I suppose. And then whoever or whatever happened and the website shut down and we're all left to ponder exactly uh, who was behind it. Yeah, yeah I, I do recall that. I do. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example, though. Um, Tabang Moreau was attempting to form a relationship with the BCCI, which would allow India's big top-ranked players to come and play in South Africa's domestic T20 <laughs> league. How? And he flew... He flew with the chief financial officer and, and various other executives and Cricket South Africa. They flew regularly over to Mumbai and were, were courted by the BCCI, who pretended that they were actually going to let Virat Kohli <laughs> <laughs> come and play domestic cricket in, in South Africa. I mean, it's just beyond ridiculous. Of course, as you know, the BCCI's... And one of the foundations of the, the IPL is the exclusivity of, of India's top players. And it, it cost, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of rand for him to keep flying over to Mumbai for the BCCI basically to... to so they had Cricket South Africa in their pocket. They had their vote guaranteed. But the idea that, uh, that, that India's top players were going to come and play here was just beyond ridiculous as you know the thing is we're laughing about it now but it got a little bit uh the, the relationship between the board and the press i mean it all got very dark didn't it um you you tweeted a video this week as you were walking one of your your dogs along the beach in cape town where you live in my happy place was the accompanying text uh, were you in your happy place when your media accreditation was cancelled <laughs> that was surreal um, it, tell the listeners. Really... Tell the listeners about was that, what was that? Eighteen months ago, or actually no, a bit. Twelve. It was just before the uh, England tour, wasn't it? Around that time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. About about a year ago, um, five of us uh, had our accreditations <laughs> revoked. The irony um, in in my case is that, and that we weren't told. So um, I've turned up to uh, an Mzanzi Super League match and doing commentary at Newlands for the SABC which is free to air. <laughs> and, so, you know, the, the, so to listeners, that's essentially is a bit like working. It's a bit like working for the BBC, I suppose, isn't it? And rocking up and then finding out your media accreditation has been got a big stamp over your face. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the irony is that um, I just, I, I, it's hard to explain the, 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 
idiocy of of the Mzanzi Super League. It cost Cricket South Africa over a hundred million rand for each of the two editions for which it was played. It's been cancelled this year. Uh, they could have put it on Supersport, which is our equivalent of Sky, who were willing to pay over a hundred million rand. So in other words, they would have covered costs, but they chose because they wanted a free-to-air footprint to put it to give it to give it to the SABC, which is basically bankrupt. So they they gave it to them for free, um, and and trumpeted um, the the philanthropy of this move. It was on SABC TV and radio, and I was going to commentate for the free-to-air radio platform. And of course, my accreditation <laughs> had been revoked. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, yeah. I mean, it, it but what just was what was the crazy. reasoning behind it? I mean, what do they say? They weren't happy with uh, what the five of us had been writing and saying about cricket, cricket South Africa, calling for transparency and, and honesty and, and better administration, um, and you know, some form of governance. Um, uh, it, it just uh, extraordinary. Three of three of the five were were freelance as well. I mean, I you know, I was seriously concerned about losing my livelihood. So who, who are the big five? That's like, the big five is synonymous with, uh, with animals in Africa, not uh, cricket journalists, <laughs> man. I think yeah. you're putting yourself a little bit, uh, get the T-shirts printed, go and buy them in uh, Santon Square. Your face, Telford Vice and three others, I imagine. Stuart Hess, the cricket writer for the Star newspaper in Johannesburg. Ken Borland, who uh, writes cricket for The Citizen. And Fados Munda, who's uh, the well-known Crick Info correspondent. Well, plenty to discuss. You're listening to The Cricket Collective. Myself, uh, John Norman, Neil Manthorpe alongside me. And still to come, uh, we are going to discuss uh, the return of Haroon Lorgat, uh, where it all went wrong. We're going to try and draw a line in the sand and how it can possibly get better. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Oh, it's a terrible shot and it's caught. It's an absolute shocker from Quentin de Kock. It really is. The shot of of Quentin de Kock, um, his dismissal was, was appalling. I've been staggered by how badly the South African batsmen have played versus in once more. Oh, that's much straighter, he's knocked him over. Much straighter, Nokia has been undone. They're uh, in disarray. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. I'm John Norman and uh, alongside me, figuratively, is uh, Neil Manthorpe. But we were discussing, uh, and still will be, South African cricket, the crisis it's found itself in over the last uh, three years or so. But, uh, man, is is it possible uh, to point to a moment in time where this all began? Um, So I'll give you a a very, very short uh, history lesson of where the rot started. 2009 we have to rewind to or at least we can go further back if you like but let's start at 2009 when the IPL couldn't be held in India and it was held at very short notice in South Africa and they did a very good job Um, the tournament was a great success and the BCCI decided to tip Cricket South Africa with a little over 4 million rand and it was treated very much like a tip. You know, this was um, income outside of the regular su- supply of, uh, of revenue. So the chief executive then, Gerald Majola, decided to keep a million for himself and to share out the rest <laughs> and to, to where, various... Where was yours? Did you get some? No, no, unfortunately not. So um, he decided that the the finance committee or uh, didn't need to know about this tip, and uh, and so he shared, shared shared it out. But then, the man who chairs the finance committee happens to be uh, a billionaire banker, a guy called Paul Harris, who uh, was one of the founder members of one of the big banks here in South Africa, and he got wind of of this <laughs> windfall. Um, <laughs> And and blew the whistle because uh, he was you know one of the few independent directors. Uh, so a commission of inquiry was chaired by Judge Chris Nicholson. He submitted his report. He said that the administration of Cricket South Africa was amateur. It needed to be professionalised. It needed to have a majority of independent directors, and that in order to attract the best people, they would need to be remunerated, not with a salary, but at least their time and expertise would need to be recognized with some form of payment but the board had to be had to be majority independent 
well. Cricket South Africa liked the idea of there being money on the table for directors, but not of them being outnumbered by independents. So they, they, they said yes to the money option, but kept the majority of seats for themselves. And in the eight years since that report was uh, submitted, they have increased the the remuneration from 96,000 rand a year to almost 400,000. And let me just tell you, 400,000 rand is very much a wage. That's a salary. Mm. And, you know, and, and for, for primary school headmasters, which is what the president of the board was for the last seven years, um, and for, for council debt collectors, um, which is what the, the, president of the Western Province Union was that that is that is a very very that's more than doubling some cases tripling their their salary in their normal job so no wonder that that they they hung on and hung on and hung on and have resisted calls to to resign for for over a year so, so th- that that's where the so it, yeah I mean when I said perks and privileges you know we are talking about flights and lunches in the in the president suite and and other perks and privileges but we're also talking about you know, 35,000 rand a month. So this all took place in 2009, around that time. And what has always surprised me, because of my extreme naivety and idealistic nature, uh, you kind of assume that the government of the country uh, involved is going to stamp out and sort out the problem. But just like in the West Indies, just like in Pakistan, just like in India, the government getting involved in a sports body's organisation isn't actually as simple as you'd think, or as simple as it should be. Yeah, you know, um, a lot was made in our case of government interference breaching the constitution of membership of the ICC. Um, and there was speculation that uh, the pro tiers, the South African national men's team would be suspended from international competition. But the reason that that clause is in there is because the ICC need to have some kind of control over how the money that they hand out to member nations is spent and and so government interference in the as far as the icc constitution is concerned is about selecting of teams and about how money is spent so you don't want a government to come along and say how much are you getting from the icc how much 27 million over you know however much it is or 96 million over the course of seven years uh, we'll have some of that so if that happens, you know, if a dictator takes over uh, and starts helping himself to uh, to the cricket board's money, then um, the ICC need to have some kind of power of recourse. Mm. Um, it doesn't quite work, but, though, does it? Because whilst that's fine, what we've seen, I mean, you only have to look at what happened in Zimbabwe a few years ago. It's not as though the people that the ICC are giving money to are un- are scrupulous themselves. Um, you know, is what are the safeguards? Once that money's arrived in the uh, whatever bank account it arrives in, how do the ICC decide that the money is being spent in the manner that it should be? Or do they just say, well, that's up to your cricket board now? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's all, I guess, whistleblowers, but also the evidence of, of your own eyes. I mean, um, Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe's case, you know, if the ICC say, hang on, we're giving you $12 million a year and there's no game. What, <laughs> what's happened to domestic cricket? <laughs> and if, and if players are saying, you know, we've, we were given one shirt to, to last for the season and we haven't got new cricket balls and that, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I just, the evidence of your own eyes, I guess, um, you, you, you need to have a return on, on the money that you spend. I mean, it's, it's not a perfect science, um, unless you go as far as the ICC did with Zimbabwe, which is actually put their own man there um, who had to sign off on every single check. That was uh, Vince van der Bale, who was the former umpires and match referees manager who worked for the ICC. He went up there um, and and literally for, for three months um, signed off on every single check. And in fact, that process continued. Um, Zimbabwe... Uh, had to justify every single dollar that they spent of ICC money. So it is possible, I, I guess. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, much as we like to think that finance is a perfect science, I, I don't think it is. <laughs> Was the successes on field from the South African cricket team um, 
did that kind of disguise what was going on for for many years at the top, or take attention away from what was going on? Yeah, I th- uh, yes. Um, but you know, Harry Lorgat, when he was chief executive, he really, really looked after the players. Uh, he's a he's a very, very much a, a finance man, um, and he he understands that the pro he understood that the relationship with the proteas whilst he may not have been a particularly empathetic chief executive he understood that the relationship with the with the men's national team because it was responsible for generating 95% of the income of cricket south africa had to be good so he really looked after the players um you know financially as as much as anything else or more than than anything else it's it it is really really important isn't it that uh, the relationship with the players is a, is a good one and it just so happened that south africa had probably the the best team they've ever had in their in their history and i say that including the the great team of uh, the 1970 uh, 69 70 because you know you had graham smith and Jacques callis and hashim amler and ab de villiers and dale stain and micaiah antini and sean pollock i mean they're you know, just brilliant brilliant players so while they were winning more than they were losing that there was much more focus on on the field and it really was only in the last two years tabang moreau had no relationship with the players whatsoever he regarded them as employees and not partners and of course there is a memorandum memorandum of understanding between the players and cricket south africa which stipulates very clearly that they are partners and that they take a revenue share of cricket south africa so when the team is successful they share in their own success and when they're not they share in their lack of success and and i i again i, I mean i i feared the, the worst over the last two years because he he the relationship between tabang moreau and the the cricketers south african cricketers association collapsed it was in it was in ruins but again now that there is an independent uh, committee and they have spoken about repairing and really nurturing the relationship with the players i'm i'm hoping that uh, again that we'll be back on a brighter course for a brighter future is is i i find it um interesting that you uh, not quite trumpet but certainly you well you may mention the fact that Haroon Logat is coming back to the game in south africa where of course he did leave under a bit of a cloud didn't he well um the, the, the Fundunzi forensic audit report that I've mentioned goes back to 2016. He left in 2017, and I, I'm not so sure uh, how much of a cloud he left under. So in other words, he, he wouldn't have been appointed because the sports minister has, has read the full report, and I presume he didn't have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. But <laughs> Don't assume Lord, anything, mate. Uh, well, okay, but Logat is clearly not implicated in that report. The the cloud in inverted commas that he left under was that he was establishing the global league, the global t- the the T20 global league, which was going to consist of eight franchises with independent owners, and he he went ahead and and you know the the eight franchises were all bought or seven of them were bought actually uh, the pile franchise was going to be owned by cricket south africa the one non-independent but he spent several million rand the launch was in london you may recall mm. in uh, in in 2017 but two months before the, the in fact less than that, seven weeks before the first game in the first edition of the t20 global league a television deal still hadn't been signed he was playing uh, chicken with massive, massive stakes, uh, you know, hundreds of, of millions of rand, and in fact, $30 billion at stake of private money. There was still no television deal with seven weeks to go, but he was absolutely confident that Supersport would come on board. Um, and it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was Russian roulette in a, in a sense, but subsequently, I and various other people have verified that Supersport would have come on board. They also were playing a game of chicken. They they desperately needed the product. They wanted the product. They were excited by it. They felt that Lorgat was pushing for too much money. So they were waiting until the last possible minute. But they but a, a bid was made 
um, for well over 100, uh, 150 million rand. Lorgat wanted $6 million. Uh, there was push and shove. And eventually the, the board got cold feet, had a fallout with Lorgat, um, and, and, and he walked. He walked away, you know. Um, so we, we'll never know how successful the T20 Global League might have been. But I tell you what, there was $30 million of, of private investment of the, the, the owners of the who bought seven of the eight franchises. You know, uh, Cricket South Africa would give both arms and both legs for, for that kind of money now. Um, and I suspect that uh, it would have been a great success, but I guess we'll never know. Brilliant stuff. Uh, you're listening to the Cricket Collective with myself, John Norman, Neil Manthorpe uh, in uh, Cape Town, and still plenty to discuss on the show, including, of course, the backdrop uh, in which this uh, cricketing crisis came to light. Uh, transformation is a, a topic that we discussed in depth when England uh, were in South Africa this time last uh, year or the start of this year. But the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Um, with uh, key individuals within and with and outside of the South African cricket team uh, getting involved. It just uh, overshadowed it slightly, and uh, we will discuss that and more on the Cricket Collective. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Three needed from two balls. Lungi and Gidi to Mayan Ali. Runs away from us up to the crease now. Bowls. Mark bowled him! He's bowled him! Here's Ngidi up to the crease now. Bowls to Rashid. It's up in the block hole. South Africa are fielded in a mid-wicket. The underarm throw. It's run out! South Africa have won the game by one run. Hello, welcome back to the Cricket Collective. I'm John Norman in London, Neil Manthorpe in Cape Town. Uh, Manners, the uh, the situation that's been afflicting South African cricket, it's been going on for a couple of years, we've been discussing that. Uh, Tabang Monroe was actually suspended just before England toured, before the TalkSport team arrived um, at the start of uh, the year, or the end of last year. But it's come to a head now, but it's actually taken some attention away from another really prickly situation itself the the black lives movement um and the way that's spread around the world the way it's affected cricket in the uk one of the uh, journalists that we came to know very well the talk sport team was lungani zama uh, who writes a uh, proficient writer in south africa and you caught up with him earlier today zams the black lives matter movement was was big in south africa for a time do you feel that it was maybe derailed a bit by the fact that that it was a sort of running alongside the COVID pandemic and also the the maladministration side of, of Cricket South Africa? I mean, did it receive due, due attention? 
yeah, man, as it was unfortunate, the timing of it, it was, you know, it was almost a triple threat. Because on one side, you, you like you say, you're dealing with a, an international pandemic, which has got everybody's attention. Um, and, and obviously, Cricket South Africa, where they were, even in the midst of some real strong decisions that were being made around the Black Lives Movement, CSA was still dealing with its own mess, which is still not completely cleaned up, obviously. So, unfortunately, there were elements of that movement and maybe even solutions to, to previous hurt and previous experiences that maybe had not been dealt with uh, in all levels of the game, which I think if there was just attention dealing with that specifically, we'd be already a lot further down the road of, of rehabilitation because I think that's what it is at this point. You're not going to get retribution, but you certainly want to rehabilitate the environment that, that cricket has played in and cricket has worked in for a lot of individuals who still feel great, great levels of exclusion. And I just think with everything else going on, it, it lost a lot of momentum. It, it definitely at, at its peak, it was highly topical and it was, you know, some very awkward conversations being had around the country. But it almost it almost fizzled out because CSA went even in a position to fix that mess because they've got administrative messes that they were dealing with. So, you know, that portfolio, even the, the social justice program that they had, the person heading that is no longer a board member. So we don't even know if that is now you know, on pause indefinitely. So there's a lot of things still to be dealt with from, from that perspective. It's over a quarter of a century since cricket was supposedly unified. Um, I presume it wasn't a surprise to you just how many people, uh, black uh, and people of color, finished their cricket careers clearly not satisfied and clearly still feeling prejudice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's unfortunately. And it's terrible that we have to say that, but it, it is not a surprise. Um, a lot of things that maybe you come in and you hope that they will change with time. That wheel has, has turned slowly. So it doesn't surprise me, but obviously it, it, it definitely disappoints you that there's been so little progress in so many facets of the game. And uh, the, hope, the hope is that those conversations can be a lot more sincere now. And because it's been brought to the spotlight in the manner that it has, you'd really, really like to think that there's a collective cohesion to sort of make, make it a, a more level playing field, make it a more palatable playing field for everyone. Because we mustn't forget that this is still a competitive environment. So the, the, the lines uh, between your disappointments can get blurred. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you disappointed purely because of what you achieved? Or are you also disappointed partly because of the barriers that were put in your way? And that's a, that's a very personal experience. And I think a lot of people straddle those lanes, uh, but it's, it still doesn't uh, invalidate their, their, their lived experiences. And I think that's a big part of this. I was talking earlier uh, to John about um, it, numbers, uh, because transformation suggests when you measure it in the numbers of black coaches, uh, black administrators, uh, black selectors and black players, that that transformation is happening. And yet so many black players still say it feels like a white sport. Yeah, it is a very hard one because, you know, from the outside, you look and you, and this is what happens when you window dress sometimes and you put positions that everybody knows are going to be on front streets. And you say, oh, but 95% of our employees are black. And um, of our managers, 75% of those managers are black. Um, the game itself, and cricket being the way that it's, it's structured, the positions of influence at the highest levels of the game are still predominantly white. Um, and whether we're talking about captains, whether we're talking about coaches, head coaches, because it's, you, can, you can easily dress that up with three or four assistant coaches of colour, but the main decision maker in your coaching panel. I think we've all just watched a fascinating documentary called Chasing the Sun where Rassi Rasmus had a team that was multiracial, multifaceted. Why do you think cricket has struggled to genuinely transform? Because it's a very difficult sport to get into without help. And um, the vast majority of people who need help are not white people. And when I say help, uh, everybody needs a helping hand in life. But I mean, just as a starting point, you know, I need to put cricket boots on. I need to get pads. I need to get gloves. I need to get transport to transport this massive 
coffin-like thing every day that I'm not going to get onto a bus comfortably without getting a bit of admin. So there's a lot of barriers in the way to the vast majority of the population. And I'm not saying that's cricket's fault or the current regime's fault, but it is a societal issue. And if we say that we want to make our teams more representative, if we say that we want to be a properly South African team, these are some of the things that we need to try and address because we've realized over 30 odd years that the government maybe is not going to address them. So if you want to change your game, the game itself has got to address them. So that's the key. And um, do, you, do you feel that it, the movement's gone off the boil in South Africa? Do, would, you like to, would you like to have seen the domestic teams taking a knee and, and, and keeping, keeping the movement, keeping awareness alive? I, I would have loved to keep to see that the, the you know this awareness being kept alive. I think we've seen with English football they've kept it going, but it's almost become a symbol that goes beyond Black Lives Matter now. It's it's uh, unfortunately some people seem to be doing it just to be seen to be doing the right thing. If there's no meaning behind it, you'd rather not do it. You don't want tokenism for something as deep as that. Um, and I think cricket, it's conversations. There's so much dead time in a cricket match when you play four days. Most of the time, you actually spend not playing cricket in that four days. So there's a lot of conversations that need to be had. And I know there's been teams in South Africa, the Titans, the Dolphins, that I know personally have used this pandemic period to really have some honest conversations and, and allow people to, you know, to, to really shed light on, on, on what it is that they have, their deepest insecurities that they even feel scared to speak of because they might influence how they're seen on the cricket field. But these are issues that you have every day. So if, if, if they're in your mind, you're not playing at your best because you're worried about these other things. And I think that's a big part of, 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 of the problem. And unfortunately, the South African psyche, the male psyche, is that we internalize these things and we say, we'll sort themselves out or I'll sort it out or I'll handle it. But obviously, we realize that over time, the experiences, they're not handled. So they're passed on to the next generation and the next generation. That's why when a, a Lungingidi speaks up, there's a whole generation that came before him that you know, says, absolutely not. This is untrue. You know, you don't know what you're talking about because it's just never been unpacked. But I'll tell you for free that people who played with Pat Simcox and played with Butcher Dipina, that they're not part of the dressing room or felt a lot less part of the dressing room than a Simcox or a Dipina. So when a Simcox and a Dipina hears these things, they're shocked and they're disappointed and they think they're discrediting everything that's been done before. No, it's one person who was a minority in your change room. You just didn't feel part of that change room. Whether you realize that you made them feel that way or not, it's happened and someone is, you know, we need to deal with that collectively to make sure that it doesn't keep happening. Freelance writer Lungani Zama chatting with uh, Neil Manthorpe and uh, I'll be chatting with Neil Manthorpe for the rest of the show. Coming up after the break on the Cricket Collective, uh, we will be looking to the future. How does a post-COVID, hopefully post-South Africa cricket crisis world look for South Africa over the next 12 to 24 months? You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Smith will get scampering. And then he'll take a bow. Because he follows up 259 on the last tour here with 100 today. <laughs> it's a very, very brave performance from the South African captain. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talk Sport 2. Myself, John Norman and Neil Manthorpe. Uh, we've discussed... Uh, uh, a lot over the last uh, hour or so, manners. But let's take a little look to ahead. Um, when we last were alongside each other at the start of the year, there was uh, still some speculation about the roles and the longevity um, in regard to the positions that Graham Smith, um, Mark Boucher, and some of the uh, the classicos that had come back to South Africa's uh, aid just ahead of the uh, the England tour, how long they'd actually be in position for. There was talk of uh, financial pressures and uh, maybe some disagreements at board level, but where do we find ourselves now? Because Graham Smith still seems to be uh, having a, a, a much more hands-on role than many expected maybe 12 months ago. Well, he's director of cricket and he is very, very hands-on, I, I can assure you. Um, everybody who's dealt with him, who has spoken about dealing with him, has been have been fulsome in their praise. Um, but it's connections, you know, that really, really matter, John. Uh, South Africa, Cricket South Africa desperately, desperately needs income. Um, they have one major sponsor left and they have 
already said that they will not be renewing their contract, which expires at the end of this South African summer. Then there will be no major sponsors at all. There are five domestic uh, competitions, only one of which has a sponsor, and that is Momentum, who are terminating their contract at the end of the, at the, end of the summer in March. So it desperately, desperately needs income. The game is going to shrink without a question of a doubt. Uh, you know, that it's a bloated structure anyway with 12 first-class provinces uh, as well as the six professional franchises. It's just absolutely unsustainable. Costs have soared. It's a bloated system. There'll be less players. There'll be less fixtures. And, and it, it's about con controlling that shrinkage. But at Connections, Graham Smith calls up Saurav Ganguly, his, his old mate, who's now president of the BCCI, and says, Saurav, mate, we need, uh, we, I, need, I need money. We need money. Uh, can you come and play three T20s? Saurav Ganguly says, yeah, sure, all right, Graham. For you, we'll do it. Um, and that, that series was actually scheduled for August. Um, unfortunately, well, it couldn't take place during uh, the pandemic. But, it, it, you know, Ganguly has committed to that. Now, that's worth $10 million, which is 160 million rand at the current exchange rate. That's, you know, it, so if if anybody complains that Graham Smith is being overpaid <laughs> director of cricket, then they just need to uh, to remember that. Mark Boucher's uh, contract, that is controversial because it, it was, you know, you'll remember he was appointed less than two weeks before the England tour. Um, and that was a result, again, of the complete inability of Tabang Moreau and his dysfunctional board to, to make decisions and get on. But there was no national coach 12 days before England arrived last year. So Graham Smith uh, had to make uh, an an emergency appointment. And so there was no time to, to advertise the position and to follow due process. Um, and he just happened to appoint his old mate. Um, so that that doesn't have a good look to it. But but let me just say this. He didn't push that through uh, autonomously. I mean, he, it, it wasn't just his decision. The board still approved it. And and so, yeah, that, you know, it's, it is a sort of a sense of getting the old band back together again. Jacques Callis was appointed as a batting consultant, but only for the England tour. You know, he was given a short term contract. Um, and he's had nothing to do with cricket South Africa again. So, in the, in that sense, it was a it was a um, it was a reunion tour for the for the big three. But I, the the future, Boucher Boucher has has been appointed till the next World Cup. But but who knows? Uh, you know there are there are plenty of um, political daggers being aimed at his back. One of the things though that we we get away from here is you know my. My last memory of South African cricket was walking away from the Wanderers, which um, I know Cape Town gets a lot of fanfare, and rightly so, but for me, that, that was my favourite ground of the ones I visited. And it was heaving. And I tell you what, it's uh, coming from a country where um, you go to a cricket ground and it's very noticeable that the demographic is very, very similar. That's not the case. That was not the case in South African cricket. And, you know, when you're watching on the TV and the camera pans across the grassy uh, the grassy banks, thankfully still a country like New Zealand that has them, you know, there there's families, there's, there's students, there's, um, there's all different religions and creeds and colours and it's a place of... Uh, cricket. The cricket ground is a place of celebration. It's... It, and it's relatively well attended it is a country that wants to go and watch cricket and actually uh, looking at the schedule it does appear that there is if they're allowed in there is going to be some cricket this winter you're right and and uh it was wonderful to to see you um appreciating the the change in the demographic because uh, you know 15 years ago the, the cricket crowds were predominantly white and that as you said is just not the case now particularly at the wanderers and also in the eastern cape and in, in port elizabeth uh, you know the cricket crowds genuinely reflect the the demographic of the country and so that's why administrators and sponsors and broadcasters want the team to equally reflect the demographic of the country. But um, it, it's it, it's happening a little more slowly on the field than it is off the field. But, do you know, the, that's why there was so much anger from uh, across the population. I mean, it, you know, it, it, this is not... This is not a racial issue as far as the board is concerned. Um, they, they were treating the game 
as if it was theirs. And the it's the people's game. The people own cricket in South Africa, and they they just wanted to 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 return to having some kind of a of a, of a genuine stake in the game. And um, we're on course. We're on course. I, I, I think we're on the right track. It's, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, we know we know plenty of broadcasters who think that they are the most important thing about the game. We've uh, we've known a lot of cricketers who think that they're the most important thing about the game. But it's the game itself, isn't it? I mean, that's that's it. As soon as you distract or you take away to the detriment of what's going on in the middle, then you're you're in the you're in the job for the wrong reasons. And it is um, it is worrying to hear you say that the the game will shrink in South Africa. Um, partly because of the uh, the mismanagement, partly because I think COVID is bringing forward some very painful decisions in all of our lives, isn't it? In, in, in not just within sport, and it's going to be it's going to be painful uh, outside the top international cricket, which has to take place because it's what makes money. It's uh, you scrape away the surface, and that's where you're really going to see the damaging effects that this kind of uh, mismanagement and uh, the coronavirus is going to have on our game. Yeah, and there's another element in South Africa, which is the um, transformation and development of the game. It it just it doesn't happen evenly across any country, as far as I'm aware, in any sport. You know, I've used this example before. You know, the the br- football is the the national game of Brazil, but um, there are some cities that uh, where beach volleyball is bigger. Pakistan, uh, some cities, uh, hockey is much bigger than, than cricket. And if you're an aspiring cricketer in the wrong region, then uh, you need to move to, to develop your career. What Cricket South Africa has done is tried to develop the game across the country. They've spent over 350 million rand a year trying to spread the game across the country. And it's just so politically incorrect uh, or that's the perception to admit that there are some places where football is much bigger than cricket has been up for a hundred years and you'd need to accept that and acknowledge that fact Um, and there are some places by the way like East London Port Elizabeth where cricket has been bigger in the black communities than than soccer for also for over a hundred years so I, I just think that 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 has got to got to stop there there isn't the budget for that anymore and if sponsors can be attracted back they won't be paying the same sort of sums that uh, they have been in the past we're coming to the end of the show um and i've just had a little look at the calendar to see what uh, the cricket collective will be bringing uh, to the listeners uh, this time next week it uh, coincides with the final of the ipl so uh, we will be doing a watch along the final hour uh, of uh, that match but there, uh, there hasn't been a lot of cricket in South Africa, but there's been a lot of South African cricketers in the IPL over the last six weeks and doing really well. Um, further indication of, uh, you know, if they can get out on the field. But is, is that uh, is that a big draw card? Not for the players so much, but for uh, the watchers and listeners, the cricket fans in South Africa, the IPL? Uh, yeah, well, there's been nothing else to, to, <laughs> to watch. <laughs> well, I, I must say... Um, there was uh, so the, the entire English summer was broadcast uh, in South Africa on Supersport, and and it was just a magnificent uh, achievement. And I, I I must say that there are several South Africans who are trying to claim a bit of credit for it because we gave you Steve Elworthy. Uh, <laughs> well, to be honest with you, the guy has absolutely nailed it, didn't he? Exactly, exactly. I mean, so we loved that, and I, I ha- yeah, I must confess that. The IPL has never, ever, ever been so watched uh, in South Africa as it has been this year. Not even in 2009 when it was held here. I think there are still more people have, uh, even those T20 snobs have uh, quietly admitted that they, uh, they've they been keeping an eye on the IPL and haven't haven't Kechisa Rabada and Enrich Norkia oh. done well? Well, yeah. and isn't it great that uh, in the case of uh, Norkia, you know, he came to uh, most people's attention in this part of the world uh, listening to uh, talk sports cricket coverage. Well, he came to most South Africans' uh, <laughs> attention as well because um, he, I mean, didn't he do well against uh, England? He was he was superb. Yeah, so um, look, it'll be nice to have them back, um, and uh, we've. Uh, I can't wait for the twenty seventh. That's the first T twenty 
between uh, England and South Africa. I, I don't know how Newlands is going to feel. I mean, uh, uh, without a crowd um, on match day, it's going to be a weird, surreal experience as I sit there all alone in my commentary <laughs> box updating TalkSport listeners. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to seeing that. There have been a couple of South Africans who have done well. Obviously, A.B. de Villiers is uh, still at the peak of his powers, I reckon. I don't think he's uh, he's lost anything. And he still harbours hopes of a return to international cricket for the T20 World Cup in uh, in a year's time. I think um, I don't think we'll see him playing against England because uh, there'd, there'd, there'd be some kickback from uh, from South African players. You know, he's uh, he needs to play a bit of domestic cricket before he gets straight back into the national team. Uh, there are a couple of others who've been uh, sitting on, on the sidelines and haven't had their chance. David Miller only played one game, I think. Um, but he's uh, there is still the, the basis of a very, very good team. Chris Morris has been doing very well for, for Bangalore. He's sort of been in and out and uh, has had a fractious relationship, largely because of uh, the administration with Cricket South Africa. Hopefully uh, he'll be get back on sides and uh, once again commit himself to the national team. I'm licking my lips at the prospect of, uh, of England being back here. Well, it's going to be satisfactory, uh, I guarantee. As soon as that, that first ball takes place, you almost forget that uh, you're on your own in a commentary box, whereas uh, at this time uh, last year, you were uh, squeezed in alongside myself and uh, Sam <laughs> Ellard and Goffey and uh, and the likes. Uh, Manners, mate, we're going to let you go. Uh, we, you will be back, though. Um, of course, uh, going to have plenty of South African cricket chat over the next couple of months here on TalkSport 2 and uh, the Cricket Collective. But for now, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can uh, download and subscribe listen for free uh, if you uh, want to listen back to any of this uh, interview if you just caught us at the halfway point on the following on podcast feed but for now thanks for listening it's been the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism and this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.